0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, good morning to all of you and welcome. Happy to be here with you. And for those of you who are attending online, hello and welcome. It adds a kind of richness to have you along online And um, so we could say that today is momentous day in that it's the last day of 2023 and tomorrow, or at midnight, we usher in 2024. And... um, I think there's maybe a tradition of people wanting to give inspiring, hopeful messages for the new year. And it would be nice if I did that today. (laughs) 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 And maybe I will. (laughs) You'll have to decide. (laughs) But um, as I think ahead for 2024, 2024, I think that we're gonna have a lot of challenges, what's coming. And um, I mean, the level of the t- speed in which the climate is changing is surprising the people who were warning us that it was gonna change. It's happening faster than we expected. It looks like we, I know it was, it's too way too early to tell whether we'll go into drought again in California, but the snow levels are quite low again all across the western part of this country. And, um, you know, we can list all these things and changes. Some of the wars that are being fought currently today, we don't see any end for tomorrow. They'll continue into 2024. And some of them might get worse, might expand and stretch. And the ways in which the wars spill over across their borders to other borders, to other countries around the world to create more and more division uh, seems to be increasing. And that'll probably continue into 2024. And there's certain reasonable scenarios for this country, is that the presidential election will be very difficult. And we don't know who will end up being president, elected president in November. Chances are that there's gonna be a big part of the population who's quite challenged and upset by this. So as we look forward to some of the challenges that are coming in 2024, One of the things that is important to consider is to prepare ourselves for this, to prepare ourselves for November so it's not a shock and surprise. So we're prepared, we're ready for whatever comes. We're prepared for the challenges of this country that who knows how much stronger they'll become. And um, so to be prepared. And I think this mindfulness practice we do, Buddhist practice, is a preparation is meant to be a preparation for the challenges we face in our life? Most commonly it's talked about the existential challenges of sickness, old age and death. But the Buddha frequently enough addressed the social challenges of our time of his times and how the practice was also meant to address those as well. So we make this big turn, in a sense, tonight at midnight, or 10.30 at IMC. (laughs) And, um, And we're making a lot, some of us are making a lot to do about nothing. Because nothing actually happens on midnight today. I mean, nothing real in the world. I mean, it's kind of an odd New Year's time some cultures have New Year's at a time where it kind of corresponds with astronomical changes. Like it make more sense to have, wouldn't it make more sense to have the New Year's on solstice? You know, they mark something real. And um, not only doesn't it mark something real, it actually marks kind of a fallacy that, um, you know, it's the end of the twelfth month of the year, but we call it the tenth month in Latin, December. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a confusion that, uh, you know, and November is the ninth month and October is the eighth month and and then uh, we call um the, then, you know, September the seventh month. So we're confused <laughs> in our language at least. And then we come to this you know, New Year's. It's a convention. And it's an unusual convention that was somehow invented by people, probably men, a long time ago. <laughs> it's not, not even a lunar calendar that goes on. So, in a sense, in some very real way, as an existentially thing, New Year's does not exist. It's a convention. It's a convention, a concept, ideas that humans somehow have created, and much of the world lives by it. And much of the world has other calendars as well. One of the great things about living in the Bay Area is that you could celebrate New Year's much through the year because there's so many different cultures here with different calendars. You you know, for a long time, the Chinese New Year's was, maybe it's still big, but it was big, and it was a big alternative to the Gregorian calendar new year. But now there's all kinds of other ones as well. And there's the Buddhist new year that happens in April. So, you know, we just keep celebrating. <laughs> so it's a convention. But actually, conventions are important. And that's the emphasis for this talk today. That conventions are are something that we create in relationship to each other. And we per- either participate or don't participate. But if we participate in the conventions, we're actually participating in a way of relating to each other, to the world. And we might think it's silly to emphasize this around the calendar, but it's actually true. It's one of infinite number of conventions, of Bridges of uh, networking that reaches out to how we're actually connected to other people. For those of us who speak English here, English is a language which is connecting all of us. As I speak, we share it. It's a bridge. It's a relationship. Rel- language is all relational. There's there's a relationship that's happening with all of you as I speak. A relationship that you happen to you as you listen to me. And there's a relationship that all of you share in being part of this together, listening to this together through the English language. What is being conveyed through the conventions that we share? What's traveling on the, if you may use this language, on the wavelength of, or the, the sound waves? What's being carried along with it? I watched a movie last night with my family, and boy, was there a lot of swearing. (laughs) And it wasn't just swearing, it was actually talking meanly to other people. It was like really heavy. I mean, they were emphasizing it in the movie, so it was kind of like part of the movie, right? But wow, how can people be so mean to each other? And in the way they were talking, they were conveying, so the relationship was something really unfortunate, something painful, something harmful, was being conveyed in the very words they spoke. And then a little bit, as to part of the purpose of the movie, was to show a transformation of people. And you could see that at some point after the transformation, a few of these people happened, that their language became much softer and kinder and there were little tears in their eyes and as they spoke and cared for each other. So that was very nice. Mm-hmm. But, uh but we have so many ways in which we this network of relatedness is happening and one of them that we all share here in this country is uh this, this change and for some of us it's not gonna, it's kind of like you know it doesn't really matter that much and I mean think we kind of do something at my house at, at nine o'clock <laughs> <laughs> with the excuse that that's like New York Times where kind of kind of time we don't even turn it on to watch it's just like okay and um and then it's important for our children and uh, one of our neighbors who knows that wants us to do it for the children which is my wife buys M&Ms and she uh, on the, at the kitchen table where my kids eat breakfast it's just the new year is is written out in m and m s so it'll say you know two thousand and twenty four kids wake up and and uh, <clears throat> and they get m and m s you know the one that you know they're twenty one and twenty five so <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my neighbor who loves this tradition, I think it's about 60, <laughs> th- it wants us to do it. She's not coming over for the M&M's, she just likes the idea. So it's a tradition that we have, and it's a way of relating to each other, and caring for each other, or loving each other, or connecting that we have this tradition that we do. So there's something in this New Year's that, you know, knits our family a little bit together. That's nice. So these relationships. So... For better or worse, Buddhism is a religion. And as a religion, it tends to offer fundamental, for Buddhists, fundamental universal orientations, values, understandings of this life that we're living in. And what I'd like to suggest is that uh, through the Buddhist lens, This world of ours is not made from atoms. It's not made from electrons or protons. It's not made of quarks and guons and these subatomic particles. That's not what this world is made of, most fundamentally. That the world is made of relationships between things. Nothing exists without being in relationship to something else. Nothing exists that doesn't have a, doesn't come from something, doesn't interact with something, so it's known and has a purpose or has some existence. Nothing that nothing exists that doesn't have some impact beyond itself. And whether it's a, you know whether what was first was there some kind of fundamental matter first that became exploded in the Big Bang, and then there were relationships of everything. Or was it, was a relationship first and then? So that's kind of like a chicken-egg question, and the Buddha never answered such a question, because he felt that there was a beginningless time, there was no beginning. But, but, uh, but the emphasis is not on what's important, is not the things of the world, like atoms. What's important is not the events of the world, how people relate, to how people are doing, what they're doing, and all kinds of things in the world. But rather, it's the relationship we have with it. The relationship we have with ourselves. The relationship we have with the different things happening with ourselves. Relationship to our thoughts, our feelings, our motivations. The relationship to the events of our lives. The difficulties and challenges, our illnesses, and our dying, and The wars of our society and our world. It's in the relationship that they're formed. That's the fundamental basis of life from a Buddhist point of view. And so what we're doing in Buddhism is having insight and understanding and transformations about the ways in which that relationship happens. This is what's key. So if we're focusing on money, like the purpose of life is to be wealthy or have money, and it's just about the money, then we lose sight of the... that money is really a relationship. Money has a certain relationship. To, it allows us to do things and connect to other people and have an influence and effect on the world. It was, it was kind of transformative for me financially, or like in terms of money that i live on on dana so the money that i live with is what's given to me out of f- people's freely given donations that I, I don't ask for anything just like people seem to want to support me as a dharma teacher so um, that money to me has a sp- in my mind at least has a spin it comes with a relationship of people who value something about the Dharma, who value something, certain value, a certain way of living. So, I feel like I have a responsibility, or a desire, or an inspiration, to continue that spin in how I spend the money. So, I wouldn't use the money I receive from Dana to go out and buy cigarettes or guns. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that would just be, seem completely kind of disrespectful or worse for what has the relationship that money represents so i would like to use it for good in the world and to think about that how do i do that and and um and sometimes because of that when i go someplace and say well this is kind of expensive and i'll tell myself well it'll just support the people who somehow receive it. That's good for them. I receive support, I'm happy to support them, it's okay. I don't know if, you know, that inspires you or not, but it inspires me. Mm -hmm. And um, so the relationship. What is the relationship we're contributing? What's the relationship we're forming? What's the impact we have? If it's all about me, myself, and mine it's too easy for that to sever relationships. It's too easy for that to dismiss how related we are so that we are more likely than not than causing harm rather than benefit. So how do we live our life in the world of relationships, not in the world of things? How do we live in the world of relationships in a way that supports and helps everyone involved, everyone in this world. It's kind of the, is, is, is one of the fundamental principles of the Buddha's teachings. Um, So, um, I would like to propose that, to use a non-Buddhist word, that it is in the relationships we have with ourselves, with others, and the world that we discover what is sacred. That's where the sacredness is. Sacred is not in some thing out there, but it's, in the, it's found in the relatedness that we have. It's that important. <clears throat> and for Buddhists, the word I'm using for sacred is the word Dharma. Dharma is sacred for Buddhists. And it's, uh, and dharma is about relationships. And the most classic way of talking about it is talk about dependent co-arising. That things arise in dependence on other things. Things arise in relationship to other things existing. This is the fundamental principles of the teaching. The dharma is found in relationships. That's where it's found. Dharma is not personal or impersonal. It's not in oneself or in the world. It is embedded in everything we are in relationship with. It's it's in that relationship. So we do, in a sense, find it within, but it's not really personal. We do find it externally. It's not really impersonal. It's all about what is the relationship we have? For humans, the known universe is sacred because we live in relationship with it. The known universe is sacred. I think this idea of known, the world that we know, however wide we can know it, however far our imagination can stretch, whether it's to the edges of your home, to your block, to the city, to the country, to the world, to the cosmos, however far you can imagine The relationship we have to it, that's what's sacred. And so if the world is sacred, it's because our imagination stretches out to include the world. It's in how we relate and are related to that we find the greatest meaning, value, healing, and liberation. The most important values and things we want for our lives is found in something, some quality of relatedness to something. So what's, the, and so the quality of relating and the object of greatest reverence is not what's on the other side of a relationship. It is how we relate. So it's not an object out there that we revere but rather the reverence in Buddhism of what is that relatedness how do we relate how are we we interacting what are we bringing with us what are we seeing what are we intending what are we supporting what qualities in that bridge in that relatedness that way we use conventions and language and speech and actions in relationship to others what are we conveying in it do we think about it Do we become unconscious where we don't care about other people? If we drive on the freeway without any concern for others, you are still relating to the others on the freeway. But you're not taking responsibility or taking care or attention to what is the relationship being formed there? It's it's sacred. It can be sacred how you drive your car. If driving your car, you're considering the relationships, all the circles of relationships that are coming into play. Do you drive on the freeway to make it a better driving experience for the other drivers? Or are they all obstacles for having, to you having a good driving experience? And so, you know, and so you use your finger to let them know. <clears throat> or do you derive such a way that's easier for other people so then when we come into this relationships then the heart of the Dharma that we teach the Buddhism, the heart of Buddhist teachings is non-harming an ancient teaching is that the primary characteristic of the Dharma is non-harming. If there's any harming involved with Buddhism, then it's not the Dharma. The primary characteristic, the prim- primary reference point for understanding the Dharma is non-harming. And non-harming is a relational issue. With ourselves, not to harm ourselves. With others, not to harm others. This means non-harming in all our relationships, including to the animals and to the natural world. The teaching of the Buddha was actually held this up as a very, very high value. The universal, the universal emphasis on non-harming the Buddha gave is a challenge for us living the lives we live, for most of us. And so it's a, is it a challenge that we're willing to accept, to live with, to relate to in a way that is healthy and hopeful, or do we just shut down and say, well, it's impossible to live a non-harming life and then not think about it again. And it's possible that uh, one of the most important relationships to rectify, to clarify, to create, move into this non-harming way is the relationship we have with ourselves. Violence causing harm harms the one who is violent, sometimes more fully than to who violence is directed. So this emphasis on relationships, all relationships I'd like to propose, evocatively, provocatively, and kind of as a catalyst for you to think about this, see how it might be true. Uh, relationships are stories. Every relationship is a story, it can be explained as a narrative. And this happened, this is how we relate, this how it unfolded. So it's been said that the world is not made of atoms, it's made of relationships, uh, made of stories. What stories do you live by? Are your stories one that empower? Are your stories one that that uh, create peace, bring love, bring friendship, bring kindness, bring support, that bring respect for every everything that you encounter? Or do you have a story that you maybe unconsciously live by that does the opposite of that? That does disrespect, disregard. This things, certain things, story is that certain things are not important enough to pay attention to or to care for. A story that some people don't count. Some people are... We have a world filled with people who are treating each other as subhuman, treating each other as monsters. And this is partly the reason why people can wage war because of the stories that are told about how terrible other people are. So what are the stories? So what story do you bring to everything you do? Some people say we need new stories. I don't know if we need new stories because I don't know if there's any new stories There's been a lot of stories down through history. We just need to choose the right stories. There's a lot to choose from. The Buddha had a story, and I like that story. I think, you know, that's the new story, (laughs) even though it's 2,500 years old. And um, stories that heal, stories that unite, Stories of mutual support and care. Stories of peace through nonviolence. We can't solve a problem with the problem itself. Can't overcome violence with violence, greed with greed. We can't overcome the problems of overconsumption with more consumption. We can't overcome the problem of depleting natural resources by taking up more natural resources. In the world of conflict, we can't solve conflict with more conflict. We can't end divisions by continuing to be divisive. We can't end fighting by fighting more. We don't find self-respect by disrespecting others. We don't find happiness by denying happiness to others. We don't, we don't find safety by making others unsafe. We don't overcome selfishness through more selfishness. So with the Dharma, the fundamental aspect of Dharma is non-harming so nonviolence nonviolence is always myopic with for the powerful violence can be successful sometimes in the short term but not in the long term and that happens in small ways and between people between friends between families and spouses that people use power and all kind of violent language violent assertions to get their way and they do well that was successful I was angry and yelled at them and they stopped doing what they did great but then something shuts down in the other person so that person no longer trusts that person no longer is willing to present to themselves and the, the relationship now has been severed in some way can it be, ever be healed It might look like it. People pretend. People go along. So, the old story. The Buddha had this wonderful teaching, I think. Maybe painful to hear, but maybe not pleasant to to hear. But this is the old story. That should be the new story. The killer begets a killer. One who conquers begets a conqueror. The abuser begets abuse. The reviler begets one who reviles. I don't know if this is universally true, but I kind of believe it's more true than not. That when we cause harm in the world, we don't create a conditions in the world where the world is going to be safe for ourselves. And so often wars create more wars. They create people with, with um, you know, who are deeply hurt and traumatized. And so, they one of the things they respond to is to twenty years later, ten years later, is to fight more. so i don't know how whether this the data right behind this this quote is completely accurate but even if it's half accurate or a quarter accurate i think it's a meaningful quote it's my man named walter wink he was writing in the you know i think in the 1990s so in the last century in 18 in 1989 13 nations comprising 1.6 billion people experienced nonviolent revolutions that succeeded beyond anyone's wildest expectations. If we add all all the countries touched by major nonviolent actions in our century, the Philippines, South Africa, the independence movement in India, the figure reaches 3.3 billion People, a staggering 65% of humanity back then. All this in the teeth of the assertion endlessly repeated that nonviolence doesn't work in the real world. We don't remember. There's something about we remember violence, we don't remember nonviolence very well. Soon after Sandy Hook, there was a man, very similar, who had a assault rifle and 500 rounds of ammunition, who was able to force himself around the security at a school of 800 kids. He was going to try to shoot as many as he could. Somehow he ended up being holed up in an office with two hostages. One of the hostages, who was really scared, started talking to him. Her name name is Antoinette Tuff. She started talking to him. And she started off by telling him the challenges she has in her life. That her husband had committed, had died, and that she wanted to commit suicide, or she had wanted to commit suicide. She started talking to him about their shared grief, their shared challenges in life. started telling him, you don't have to die today. Life will still bring you about turns, but we can learn from it. She said that as she started this conversation, she started because she saw that this man who wanted to kill was a sick person who could be cared for. when he said that he, when she kind of finally this starting conversation with him that um, before she started it uh, he had sh- shot his weapon once I think into the floor of the, uh, the room there and the police had done a barrage of, of uh, shots through the door that didn't hit anyone so it was kind of a tense situation she has a conversation with him and when he kind, of, decide, he kind of helped him understand that maybe he was better off turning himself in, she praised him. You're a good person. I love you. I'm proud of you. And he, and at some point he put down his gun, and they opened the door, and that was the end of it. We don't remember this event. We remember Sandy Hook. Shouldn't we be remembering this? Isn't this monumental? That how many people it saved? That this act of nonviolence, this act of love and care had such a huge impact? This makes a difference. So, one of my uh, heroes is a man named Michael Nagler, who's a professor of peace studies at UC Berkeley for 40 years. And I got this story from him, his book, his most recent book on nonviolence called The Third Dimension. And he says he studied these kinds, of, uh, these kinds of situations, these kinds of people have done this much more often than we realize. And he says they have four things in common. You see a distraught person as a suffering person, not a threat or a monster. You show the person they are not alone in their grief. You share your personal pain with them. You offer one way or the other the teaching, this too will pass. And then the the way he writes it, you buck up the person, you buck the person up, you kind of praise them or do something positive. And because many times these people have never been, have been bullied or never, never seen with respect. I find it remarkable that in his study, these are the four principles he sees that's in common with with um, you know so many of these things that don't make the news enough. This is what can change the world. So therefore, respect or love of one's op- opponents is pragmatically useful. I think this is is kind of a teaching from his book. Respect or love for one's opponents is pragmatically useful in being a technique that distinguishes the deeds from the doers. This increases the possibility of the doers changing their behavior and hopefully their belief. So, this talk has kind of kind of centered around this idea of nonviolence but the reason for that is that this is in buddhism is that this is a central principle that guides us into what is sacred into what has the greatest value which is the it guides us into the story that orients all the relationships we have to everything to events, to things, to people, to this world. It's a, fundamentally a relationship of non harming. That's the bottom line. Above that, there are a few things like love, and generosity, and kindness and respect. And this is not necessarily unique to Buddhism, but I wanted to read a, a somewhat famous passage for those who know it um, in India, I think, from the Mahabharata, in the seventeenth chapter. So the, the Sanskrit word for nonviolence, non-harming is ahimsa. I think many of you probably know it. Ahimsa is the highest virtue. Ahimsa is the highest self-control. Ahimsa is the greatest gift. Ahimsa is the best suffering. Isn't that fascinating? Ahimsa is the best suffering? If you're going to suffer, suffer because of that. Ahimsa is the highest sacrifice. In the United States, we have this idea that the higher sacrifice is what? To die because for your country? In war, ahimsa is the finest strength, ahimsa is the greatest friend, ahimsa is the greatest happiness, ahimsa is the highest truth, and ahimsa is the greatest teaching. So, as we come to this momentous transformation that'll happen at midnight, (laughs) or 10.30, or 9 in my house, we are voluntarily, you didn't realize that, maybe you're reluctantly doing it, but participating in a mass movement of a a way we relate to each other, a bridge, a network, a connectivity that we all have. And when we celebrate New Year's Eve, maybe we're celebrating those relationships. And it's arbitrary that this is the New Year's Eve, that we call it that. But it's not arbitrary the way that we're related to each other. And you could just ignore this one, and just go to sleep, that's fine. But don't ignore all the different ways that you see. Don't ignore this fact that we're related to each other. Don't ignore the fact that we the fundamental ta- way of taking care of yourself is in taking care of the relationships you have. With everything, yourself, with your atoms, <laughs> with other people, with the natural world. It's in relatedness we discover, in relationship we discover the Dharma. It's in the relationships that we discover where we cling and where we're generous, where we're hostile, have animosity, and where we have love. It's in the relationship to things that we discover wisdom and our foolishness and our delusion. It's in the world of relatedness we discover how to be free. Free of all that harms, intentionally harms, purposely harms. And that clears the, clears the room, clears the room in our hearts for the best qualities of, of the heart to come forth. Because if the heart is any, anything, the metaphorical heart, It's the deepest, most valuable place from which we can relate to anything and everything. May it be that as we go into this new year and prepare ourselves for all the challenges that come, that we let our heart, that deep deep place within, be the place where each of our worlds begins that if we want to create a peaceful world, a loving world, don't wait for other people to do it. Don't wait for your politicians to do it. It begins with you, with how you relate to the people close to you, how you contribute to harmonious harmony and peace in the people you know, and how that community then relates to the bigger communities and the bigger communities, let it flow from you. And let that be the place where you rest. Let that be the place where you're ready for whatever comes. Even though the the world comes with tremendous challenges that are overwhelming for all of us, as they are right now for others in Gaza and Ukraine and Somalia and the list goes on and on and on, the places where people are living under horrendous challenges. Then it might be our turn next. Be ready in such a way that you always remember that the world begins with your heart. Your world that you relate to. Your relatedness. That's where it is. And this practice can support you and help you and help you find how to rest in a, from a place that always is creating a good world from you. And who knows what you'll be asked to do. The woman who talked the shooter out of shooting, until that moment, till that day, she was the public eye for the news and the books that wrote, I wrote up and all these things that, she was an ordinary person, maybe like you. <coughs> but something came her way and she responded to it and related to it in a way. So who knows what's coming for all of us? Let's be ready. Let's use 2024 not to have hope for what it's gonna bring, but have hope for how we can relate to whatever comes. We can use this practice. This practice is powerful. And you give yourself to this practice well. This practice will show you the way to relate in a way that's beneficial for yourself and this world. May it be so. <clears throat> thank you so we do have a potluck here in a few weeks in a few minutes and so those of you who are staying maybe you can take a few minutes to say hello to each other and uh, welcome each other so maybe turn around to a couple of people around you and not just the so people who are new especially are, you know can feel more connected and maybe more interested to stay thank you